0: You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson.
1: Hello and welcome back to the show. Today, I'm going to share with you an older episode that I did with Dr. Nicola Tallis. Now, Dr. Tallis is one of my favorite authors and historians, and I started my journey with her reading Crown of Blood. That was her first book. It was about Lady Jane Grey. Since then, she's also written a book about Latisse Knowles, who you probably know as a rival of Queen Elizabeth I, the woman who married Robert Dudley. And after that, she also wrote a book on another fascinating Tudor woman that many of you adore, Margaret Beauford. Now, today... Dr. Tallis and I talk about all three women, Lady Jane Grey, Latisse Knowles, and Margaret Beauford. So let's get to it and talk some Tudors.
0: The Tudors Dynasty Podcast.
1: So you started out with Crown of Blood. Yeah. And then you moved on to Elizabeth's rival, and now we have Uncrowned Queen. So I want to start real quick with your first book, Crown of Blood. I one of my favorite books. You are one of my favorite Aww. authors and historians. Thank um, you. Crown of Blood, the amount of research that you must have put into writing that one, especially maybe as your first book. How long did you spend on the research side?
0: Um, yeah, the research side uh, was five years. So that was really my baby. That was my real, um, yeah, it really was a, a huge labour of love for me. And um, it, was, it was really nice because I wasn't under any time constraints with you know, deadlines and things like that. So I could sort of take my time with it all. And it was a really, really great experience for me. And Crown of Blood will always be very special to me.
1: I think that book really made me fall in love with the tragic nature of Jane's story. What was it that attracted you to Jane?
0: Initially, I actually began researching her mother, Frances Brandon, and um, it was only when I'd written a draft of a manuscript about Frances that my agent at the time said to me, "Okay, well, that's great, but why don't you actually spend some more time looking at Jane's story? And... At that time, I wasn't particularly enthused because I felt like we probably knew as much as we were ever going to know about Jane. And so it became as a real surprise for me, a really pleasant surprise, I might add, when I went back to the archives and actually uncovered material that hadn't been used in a published biography of Jane before. And so that was a really, really great experience and a historian's dream in many ways, for sure.
1: Yeah, because in most cases, finding um, any written documentation from that time period about a woman isn't very easy to do.
0: No, absolutely not. And especially um, about the life of a teenage girl living in rural Leicestershire at the time. So, yeah, it was like finding gold, to be honest.
1: (laughs) That's quite amazing. And then you moved on and you did Elizabeth's Rival. You tell the story of another very interesting woman in history. What attracted you to Lady Knowles?
0: She was just, uh, she was so fascinating. And I came across her story whilst I was researching for Crown of Blood. And I was in St. Mary's Church in Warwick. And I was there just checking facts and getting a photograph, actually, for Crown of Blood. And Uh, Whilst I was there, I was admiring her tomb, the tomb that she shares with Robert Dudley. And I was just struck by how magnificent this tomb was. And it occurred to me that I didn't really know anything about her. And uh, I've got a very curious mind. So when I went to try and find out more about her, I was really shocked to find that there wasn't any full scale biography of her. And As I'm sure you know, finding somebody in the Tudor period that hasn't been written about before is, again, it's like finding gold dust. And it was a real, it was a real moment for me. And I thought, well, this is, this has got to be worthy of a book because it's such
1: an explosive and such
0: a powerful story.
1: Do you pronounce her name Lettice or Lettice?
0: Lettice. It's Lettice. So it's a shortened form of Letitia, which was the Latin word for happiness.
1: And we learn so much about her in your book. I remember being surprised at at her age when she died. She was quite old.
0: Yeah, she was 91 and she died on Christmas Day in 1634. So that was... You know, it's pretty much um, almost unheard of in the Tudor period where mortality is kind of 30s and 40s. So she did incredibly well. And you know, lots of her family members actually also lived into, into ripe old ages as well. So it's clearly good genes, I think.
1: So for anybody who's listening, if you have yet to read Crown of Blood or Elizabeth's Rival... Please read them. You will not be disappointed. I promise you. <laughs> Thank you. And So now now you've moved on and you have published your next masterpiece, I'm going to call it. Oh. And it's called Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, Tudor Matriarch. Yeah. So I haven't read this yet. I'm just presuming it's a masterpiece. If it's oh, anything like well, you. Really to... Can you tell everyone the reason behind the title Uncrowned Queen?
0: Yeah, I mean I think I really struggled with the title for this one for quite a while um which was uh a kind of disheartening for me in some ways because the titles for the other two books came almost straight away and it wasn't until I really began delving into the archival material for Margaret Beaufort's life for which we're quite fortunate that it's quite plentiful in in some places and um, from this, I was able to start building up a clearer picture of her um, and her, her personality, her character. And it became clear to me that this really was the only possible title that I could use because Margaret really did behave. And I think in many ways believed herself to be a queen in all but name. And so the title just seemed to fit perfectly.
1: What kind of surprises did you come across maybe while you were researching that you can share with us?
0: I think I was really surprised by um, what a fun-loving personality Margaret could be at times because I think, like many people, I had the traditional image of her in my head as being quite a dour, uh, serious, and very, very pious individual. And certainly she was very, very pious. But I think I was really surprised by pleasure loving she could be and you know we know she absolutely loved to be entertained and throughout her accounts we see payments sprinkled to all sorts of entertainers um so for example on one occasion she paid some spaniards to dance the morris for her Uh, on another she paid a child to sing a song for her um, she really, really loved chess and gambling. She was often known to place bets on the results of games of chess. And she also had two fools who um, I think were probably put to quite regular, regular use in her household. So she was a woman who, although undoubtedly very serious at times in her life, was also able to combine this with her ability to have fun. And, she, you know, she sure did like to have a good time.
1: That's interesting because you're right. My impression of her has always been um, very dour, very pious, mm-hmm. um, very serious. So it's it's interesting to hear that maybe she did have a more fun side. Now I can't wait to read this.
0: Thank you. <laughs> yeah, she really did. She really did.
1: Why do you feel like so many people um, are fascinated by Margaret right now?
0: I think she's been a main figure in lots of popular culture in recent years so of course she's been the subject of philippa gregory's red queen and you know she's also featured in the white queen and the white princess the drama series and so i think that that's perhaps brought margaret a bit more to the forefront of people's notice and i think n- not necessarily for the right reasons but it's certainly given her uh, some attention and i think that perhaps as a result of that yeah, there has been this kind of growing interest in her.
1: You know, so I've had um, Matthew Lewis and Nathan Amin on my show. Yeah, and and so now now I have to <laughs> ask ask you the question too: Who is responsible for the princes in the tower?
0: <laughs> well, I can say that it's not Margaret, <laughs> that's for sure. I think I think that um, people do have this idea that. She may have been responsible for the murder of the princes in the tower. Um, And I think that what's important to say is that there's not a single shred of contemporary evidence that links Margaret with their disappearance. And I think, to me, that is the most integral evidence of her innocence, because had there been any involvement on her part, then I find it possible to believe that Contemporary chronicles, you know even even one wouldn't have made some mention of her, and there's nothing and the first evidence or first suggestion that she was in any way involved with their removal dates from over a hundred years after her death, and you know I think that that's quite telling, so you- I'm sorry, I was just gonna <laughs> say yes <yeah>, so um <laughs> i uh, what I will say is that uh whoever may or may not have been responsible i Certainly don't think there's any evidence to to pin it on Margaret.
1: Thank you for answering that. <laughs> I, I always feel like these stories that come out, you're right, are always from a century after the person lived. Yeah. And it's easy for us modern readers and researchers and writers when we look at this to forget like, hey, this person lived 100 years after Margaret died. They probably don't really know the true story.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the things with Margaret. I think um, people perhaps have been, have had their judgment clouded by pop culture in recent years. And um, to me, that was another compelling reason why an updated biography of Margaret's life was not only desirable, but also necessary, I think, in order to clear her name. Um, But in my opinion and I did it is important for me to say actually that I did approach this project completely um, from an objectional point of view I did really want to be objectional and just see where the evidence took me and to me there there wasn't any evidence to prove that Margaret was this sort of very dark and twisted character that she's sort of been portrayed to be and so for me Having done my research, it seemed important to try and set the record straight and to restore some of her credibility to her, which in recent years, perhaps she's lost a little bit.
1: What do you think the biggest myth surrounding her life is?
0: Um, certainly the fact that she may have been involved in the disappearance of the princes in the Tower. That's the most recent one. But also, yeah, that she, as I was saying earlier, that she is, she was this um, very, very matronly um overbearing woman who dominated her son's court and was you know, fanatical not only about religion but also about um about her son and and her ambitions for him and i think that undoubtedly she her son was the most important person in her life and clearly the most important relationship that she had she loved him dearly and would have done anything for him and um, I think that on uh, occasions this certainly would have got on her daughter in law 's nerves the nerves of Elizabeth of York, but I think that any suggestion that their relationship wasn't um, wasn't particularly close is is untrue. I think most of the evidence suggests that Elizabeth and Margaret worked very well together and that you know that they shared a very good relationship and I have no doubt that there would have been occasions when yeah, Margaret would have annoyed Elizabeth because she was almost a constant presence at Henry VII's court for the first decade of his reign. And yeah, I have no doubt that this would have caused some friction on occasion. But I think that it's highly been, it's been very highly exaggerated and to Margaret's detriment to make her look like, uh, you know, she was this sort of terrible, overbearing mother-in-law from hell. And the reality <laughs> is I don't think that's, I don't think that's quite the case. <laughs>
1: that's, that's really is the impression that we get of her with pop culture is that she, she was like that. Another, yeah. another thing that I feel like comes up a lot online that I see is people assuming that Margaret um, always imagined Henry being on the throne. Um, what can you say to that?
0: I think that there's no evidence that Margaret, Saw um, or tried to press her son's claim to the throne prior to 1483. And it's very clear that prior to that, she was actually working to try and effect a reconciliation with Henry, um, and I'm um, sorry, for Henry with Edward IV. And, um, you know, there's no reason for Margaret to have pushed her son's claim prior to 1483 because. Edward IV was, to all intents, a strong leader, and it looked like the continuance of his dynasty was set to flourish because he had two male heirs. And when he died in April 1483, it's very clear that it took everybody by surprise, his subjects and his court. And it's only really then, with the uh, disappearance of the princes in the tower, that Margaret's mindset seems to have changed. And It seems to have changed quite quickly, actually, because um, within a matter of weeks of Richard III declaring himself king, perhaps even less than that, we know that Margaret was plotting against him. But certainly prior to that, I don't think that there's any basis in fact that she was plotting this glorious future for her son as king of England.
1: With the bloodline that Margaret comes from, do you believe that Henry VII was a usurper?
0: No, I don't believe he was a usurper. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination he had the strongest claim to the throne. Um, But no, I I wouldn't describe him as being a usurper. I think although the Beauforts, from which he descended, of course, through his mother, were uh, initially born um, out of wedlock as a result of uh, the liaison between John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford, they were later legitimated by Richard II, um, and you know this was passed through Parliament. But crucially, although Henry IV later added a clause which said that you know, the Beauforts couldn't inherit the throne, this wasn't passed through Parliament. And I think that had it been passed through Parliament, then, yeah, Henry could rightly be described as a usurper. But it never was. So in my opinion, no, he's
1: not a usurper. Thank you for clearing the air on that one too. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. (laughs) So my last question about um, your most recent book is, is there anything else that you want to make sure that everybody knows about it before they go out and buy a copy?
0: I think really it's, it's the point of the book was to tell the story of an extraordinary woman who became one of the most influential personalities of the late 15th century and it's to tell you know from her her point of view I suppose in many ways but through the highs and the lows you know she did live a life of unprecedented tragedy in many ways and also unprecedented power and it really is a an explosive and a very dramatic story and perhaps one that for many readers would be full of surprises and offer a different perspective of the Tudor period. So that's what my hope is and that's what I hope that people would see if they were going to consider reading it or buying it.
1: So I do have to ask, since it took you five years to research your first book, have you become a faster researcher or does it still take you just as long?
0: Um, I, I have become a faster researcher just because of the fact that I do now have publishing deadlines. <laughs> um, so this one took me two years and it doesn't mean that you don't do as much work. In fact, it, it just means that you have to do all of the same amount of work, but you just have far more sleepless nights. So that was because with Margaret Beaufort and with Uncrowned Queen, there is so much archival material. I was literally sometimes sitting up from six in the morning until maybe like two, three AM transcribing material from her account books because there are thousands of pages and you know, and I, I didn't miss a single one. So yeah, like I say, it, um, it certainly doesn't mean that you kind of, you, you've given license to skip through some of it just because you haven't got as long. It just means that you've got to work 10 times as hard and, all I can say is that I've had to, um, I've had to buy a new anti-aging moisturizer since.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it has taught you, I would say, very good time management skills.
0: Yeah, it <laughs> certainly has because you have, you, you you just haven't got any time to slack. You have to just get on with it. And when you know you've got this deadline and you can't disappoint people, yeah, because it isn't just me. Even though it's me that writes the book, I've got. I'm very fortunate that I've got a whole wonderful um, team working with me at my publishers. You know, my editors and my publicist, and it's very much a team effort. You don't want to let them down as well. So um, you just got to get on with it.
1: Well, now we come to the the part of the show, Nicola, where I like to ask some more fun questions, um, okay. maybe to let people get to know you a little bit better. One <laughs> of the one of the questions I've asked, I would say, almost everybody this season, is mm-hmm. the um, of the six wives of Henry the Eighth. Which wife is your favorite?
0: Oh, that's easy. It's without a shadow of a doubt, it's Catherine Parr. Really? Yeah, I love her. I think that she was so intelligent and so interesting and also completely underrated as well. Like we only really remember her as the one who survived and there's so much more to her than that. You know, she's the first Queen of England to write not just one book, but two books. Um, She, oh, she's just fascinating. She was, um, yeah, she loved jewellery. She loved clothes. You know, she's really, really definitely my kind of queen.
1: (laughs) I love it because I've been researching Thomas Seymour for a book for the last three years, and oh. so i i felt like I've gotten to know Catherine a little bit through doing my research on him, yeah, know yeah, you must
0: do, and she's do you like her?
1: I do she's fascinating, she really is, yeah. and she doesn't she doesn't get the the justice that she deserves, so there's been no. some there's been some great books um done by her in the past, which is yeah, has been wonderful, but I would love to see another one hint hint. yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) okay so my next question is if i had a time machine that could guarantee your safe return when and where would you go
0: oh okay that's a mm,
1: that's an interesting one where would
0: i go oh do you know i think i would i'd love to go back to medieval france perhaps early medieval france and maybe like the court of henry the Second and eleanor of aquitaine um i think that would be really really fascinating and just to see uh, i don't know because i think they had a really passionate relationship to begin with and then it all went badly wrong so i'd love to go and you know be a fly on the wall for that one
1: that's a good one i think that was dan jones's answer too so you guys can travel together oh. What is one thing that people might be surprised to learn about you?
0: They'd probably be really surprised to know that I didn't start life as a historian, Um, although I have been interested in history all of my life. But I actually uh, didn't do very well at at school, and I went off and trained to be a beauty therapist. And um, it was only when I snapped a ligament in my wrist and was sat at home feeling very sorry for myself with my wrist in a plaster cast that I began thinking about what on earth I was going to do next. And I was reading, um, I began reading more history books and it really reignited my passion. And it was from that point on that I went on to pursue a career as a historian.
1: And that concludes this flashback episode of the Tudors Dynasty podcast with Dr. Nicola Tallis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Until next time.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.